You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech, the Future Tech Health Podcast. I have uh, Dr. Charles Murray, Chuck Murray. Uh, Dr. Murray is a cardiovascular pathologist, uh, clinical interest span, ischemic heart disease, cardiac transplantation, atherosclerosis, heart failure, cardiomyopathy, valvular disease, and non-atherosclerotic vascular disease. That's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, Dr. Murray, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me, um, you know, in addition to the normal uh, heart doctor work, uh, what's your research about? Let's, let's start with that. Yeah, so I, my, I'm a stem cell guy these days, and we're, we're really uh, quite interested in harnessing the power of stem cells to regenerate the human heart. And so my laboratory studies uh, heart disease in various manifestations, and we're, we're gearing towards clinical trials soon where we hope to be able to take some of the first shots on goal to actually grow back new human heart muscle, or as we call it, to remuscularize the heart. So this is a muscle that gets uh, compromised what, during a heart attack? That's right. So yeah, the, the heart is the least regenerative organ in the human body, maybe fighting for the with the brain for that title. Um, but the, so when a person loses heart muscle cells, like in a heart attack, where you block off an artery and a chunk of the wall dies off, they never grow back. So instead, what happens is you're left with scar tissue that doesn't beat and people go on to get heart failure. So uh, heart failure in most cases is a classic disease of cellular deficiency. Our thought is since we can now grow essentially unlimited amounts of human heart muscle from stem cells, uh, let's see if we can't transplant these heart muscle cells back into the wall of the injured heart and remuscularize it. Any insights into why the heart won't regrow when other tissues will? It's such an interesting question. Uh, the the in in lower vertebrates like in amphibians, for example, or fish, they can regenerate their hearts throughout their life. Uh, but in mammals, uh, we can regenerate our heart for a little bit after birth, and then that's fairly quickly lost. And it's a big mystery why that is. Uh, an, uh, an interesting paper just came out in Science Magazine that suggested that evolutionarily we lost our ability to regenerate the heart about the time we mammals became committed to regulating our own body temperatures, and that the, 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 the trigger for that was thyroid hormone. So, hmm. you know, let's, let's, let's see how that holds up, but it's a very interesting idea. So, how have you tested this idea? You've, uh, have you tried like a heart in a dish that you've kept beating or a series of cells in a dish that you've kept beating and you've cultured extra muscle cell and put it in the dish and see if it starts to beat and then beat in time with the existing cells? 
Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's it's stuff very much along those lines. We're not just to be clear to the listeners, we're not trying to grow whole hearts in a dish. Some people, some people are doing that. Uh, we're we're shooting for things a little closer term, where we but it, but it all starts with the stem cells. We grow them up in large quantities, and then we trigger them to uh, become more specialized or to differentiate. And we can direct them down all kinds of fates, but the one we're particularly interested in is heart muscle. And so now we can grow dishes and dishes or even vats and vats of beating human heart muscle cells in the laboratory. And once you have those, that's what we consider like seed material to replant into the wall of the injured heart. So that takes us then from the bench research into uh laboratory animals, and we've been working our way in learning the rules of how to grow new heart tissue in, in laboratory animals for some time, and getting to the point where we're, we're thinking it's time to take a, a, a shot on goal, as I've said, for human patients. Have you tried to, um, so when you implant the cells, how do you assimilate them into the existing heart? Do you, yeah. you know, I've heard that there's patches, uh, you know, essentially graft-like structures, I mean, with, how do you assimilate them? So we've we've <laughs> we've tried about everything, uh, and and what we are going back to is what we started with, which is to just it's it, it's pretty simple. We take the cells in culture, we disperse them so that they're mostly single cells, like a slurry of single cells. Use it use it, in some cases a needle and syringe, and uh, just stick that into the region of injury and the and the tissue surrounding it. And literally squirt uh, little little clumps of cells, kind of like planting a garden bed. And you put them in an, in an array-like pattern, and let them do their thing. And here's the, here is where we get the break from Mother Nature, because these cells are really smart. They're they're <laughs> they're smarter than I am, that's for sure. And they are able they they know what to do in this environment. They start to divide. They uh, reach out and and connect to each other, and they connect to the existing heart. Uh, tissue on either side, uh, you know, the normal regions around the injured zone, and they start to beat in synchrony after a little while, and it, it's it's really quite cool. So that's the the basis of it. We've tried patches, we've tried particles, we've tried this and that, but the thing that seems to work best right now is just injecting uh, the cells into the wall of the heart. And in for our first clinical trials, we won't do this with a needle and syringe. We'll use a catheter that's got a needle at the end of it, so that we can just go into a standard cardiac catheterization lab to deliver the cells. What's happened when you try to do patches or particles or things like that? What what behavior happens? Well, the, it, we were we were quite big on this notion of engineer and this when you take it up into higher order things where it's not just cell therapy, if you will, that that's called tissue engineering. And so we built these pieces of three-dimensional human heart muscle in the laboratory. And they're just fantastic to watch, Rich, because you can, you can see these guys beating with your naked eye. You can hook them up to little force transducers and put them in the cardio gym and make them, you know, make them work and see how strong they get, that sort of thing. Uh, and so we were really excited about it. And then we put them onto the, uh, the surface of the heart. So putting it on, the, and people call this the patch approach. So you put it on the, the surface and you typically try to span all the way across the injury region. So it's, it, it spans from one normal region to the other normal region. And under the microscope, it looks pretty good. You get this big chunk of new human heart muscle that is, uh, you know, equal uh, to a large fraction of the volume that you lost. And and so as a pathologist who looks through a microscope, it looks pretty good. The problem is when you start to look at its function. 
and what we found was that it doesn't connect up with the rest of the heart muscle when we do that. It's separated by a band of scar tissue, and it doesn't get the electrical signal to beat. So it, it follows its own drummer instead. And in, in for example, in a, in a rat heart that normally might be beating 300 or 350 beats a minute, uh, the human heart muscle is sitting there at, at, beating at 40 beats a minute quite lazily. And it doesn't have nearly the beneficial impact as when you put it into the wall where it can follow pace and beat in sync. So, okay, uh, quick question, stepping back. The stem cells you're using, are they heart cells that you've induced pluripotency in and made them heart stem cells? Or are they skin cells that you're inducing pluripotency and taking them down the heart cell path? So these are cells that... Um, we, we can do this this two ways. We can uh, we can take cells that are pluripotent to begin with, like embryonic stem cells, or we can take cells that have, were like skin cells or blood cells, something like that, and have been reprogrammed to the most potent type of stem cells, and those are called the induced pluripotent stem cells. Either of those work quite well, uh, and we know the recipes now, basically, for making human heart muscle from them, so that's quite efficient. Any difference in the you know your choice of starting cell? in terms of performance and integration? Yeah, I think that, that an embryonic stem cell and a reprogrammed induced pluripotent stem cell are essentially, you know, they're like kissing cousins. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're really almost the same thing. And, and so they, in, in turn, once you turn them into heart muscle, uh, it's, the, the, the effects are pretty much indistinguishable. Does the heart have any stem cells, you know, uh, natural stem cells in it? And if so, what do they do? And, you know, what does it have yeah. What a great question that is. That's been really controversial in our field for a better part of 20 years now. I think it's, it's finally sorted, so I can just tell people the bottom line for this. And, the, the, and that is that there is not a muscle-forming stem cell that lives in the heart. And that is at part of the root, you know, the root cause for why the heart is so bad at regeneration. Uh, people thought there were for a long for a long time, but the, the definitive studies have come out in the last few years, and, and the answer is clearly no. There there is none. Uh, there are there are cells stem cells in the heart that can give rise to new blood vessels, new connective tissue cells, and things like that, uh, which is kind of like the heart's infrastructure. But in or but in terms of replacing the muscle cell, which is the key population, nada. Um. When uh, someone has a heart attack, have you looked at the morphology of the heart tissue that dies? Does it tend to take certain shapes and have certain widths? And does it go through the whole muscle itself, or does it sit on the outer surface of the muscle or the inner surface? Is there anything interesting to be learned there? Yeah, and so this this is something uh, that, that we know the answer to really well because it's been very well studied in experimental animals and in human beings. And there, the the thing that determines the size. There are several things that determine the size and the shape of of the tissue when that's lost during a heart attack. Uh, the first thing is just the, the anatomy of the of the uh, coronary vasculature and wherever the blood clot happens to form in the in terms of the, uh, the tree branch stru structure. And so the, the 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 bigger the amount of tissue that was fed by that vessel, where wherever it becomes occluded the greater amount of heart muscle you're going to lose. So that's number one. And that sort of is the lateral or the circumferential extent of the heart attack. Uh, and the next thing is time. The longer the artery stays occluded, the longer, uh, the, 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 more, the more death of heart muscle that happens. So time is heart muscle. And this is why we always want to get people to come in as quickly as possible after they have chest pain. 
because we can open their artery back up and save the muscle. Uh, now, the, the muscle doesn't die off just willy-nilly. Uh, it, 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 there's a very systematic progression and the, the, it, 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 in a wavefront manner. So it starts at the innermost layers of heart muscle and with time marches its way out through the wall towards the outside border. And so the, the lateral boundaries are, are, are vascular and the uh, what we call transmural or across the wall boundaries are time dependent. Hmm. Interesting. Um, anything about the nature of the muscle death? You know, once it's dead, it's dead, that's it. Or is there anything um, you've observed about, like you said, it's a, it kind of happens in a wave from inside out. Uh, any peculiar, interesting things you've noticed when you looked at, you know, a, a dead region? Well, one of the interesting things, Rich, is it doesn't stay dead for very long. People always think about a heart attack as being a region of dead tissue, but it's it's only dead for the the dead muscle is only there for a matter of weeks to maybe a month. Uh, and what happens is there there's a big wound healing response, and so your white blood cells come in, and there's a special class of the white blood cell that's a, called the macrophage, and they literally gobble up. The, the dead heart muscle, and then new tissue grows in to take its place. And it, it has a lot of blood vessels and a lot of connective tissue cells. And the problem is its default pattern is to just go on and form scar tissue. So it, we, we, we see this really dynamic waves of the injury followed by inflammation, followed by repair that unfortunately ends up as scar tissue. And so part of what we're doing is we tinker around with heart attacks is can we change this default pattern? Is it, is it possible to re-educate the cells so that we end up with something that would be more useful, like growing back new muscle, for example? What do you think is the uh, the reason for scar tissue? Is it just you know, the body's removing the old dead tissue, but it's putting scar tissue in? Is there any particular morphology to the scar tissue? Is it doing it to keep the structural integrity of the area? Or is there? do you see that there's any other possible reason to have it? Is it... Maybe it acts as like a backup system. I don't know that uh, brings more vascularity in case something happens again to an area. I don't know. Yeah, these are the, it's, it's really it's really good questions, and sometimes you know the why questions are are among the hardest ones to answer. Uh, the 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 scar serves a function as a uh, a bridge between the healthy regions, and so it it holds the it holds the heart together while the rest of you know the surviving tissue does the extra increased work. And so it, it, you know, we know that if you stop scar tissue formation experimentally, for example, with drugs or various genetic tricks and that sort of thing, it's disastrous because the dead tissue never gets eaten, and uh, and then it it breaks down and tears, and the heart ruptures. And so the it, it, the the scar tissue certainly we're better off with it than without it if that if that's our only two choices. The the question we're asking is really can we be smarter than that and improve on, on nature's pathway which isn't which isn't that great especially when you see how beautifully uh, hearts regenerate in newts for example so what happens when you're seeding the heart with these new uh new story pump stem cells do you seed all throughout the dead area do you seed at the edges slowly and then move inwards like and at and what point do you do it? Do you do it after the scar tissue has been formed or before into the dead tissue? More, more really good questions, very very pragmatic. Uh, but let, let's talk about the where first, and then we'll come to the when. Uh, the where is we right now we we sort of do it like a little garden bed where we plant and we we give little injections of say a hundred microliters each, just 
squirt, 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 squirt in a line, then, then move over in another little line and that sort of thing. And then, and we always go um, not only in the injured region, but into the, the, the border zones as well, because we find that that's really dynamic and it's uh, keeping a happy, healthy border zone is quite important. So that's the where. And then the when is, um, is is not completely nailed down for in terms of uh, how best to treat human beings. What we found in experimental animals is that it we, we get more bang for our buck if we go in say a couple of weeks after after a heart attack before the heart has all scarred up and changed its shape and that sort of thing. And so we get we we that's when we have the most benefit to uh, pump function. Uh, for patients, we probably won't start that soon after a heart attack, uh, just because we, we'll, we'll probably start in patients with advanced heart failure, just from a safety standpoint. Those are the patients, you know, we're, we're also worried about potential uh, side effects and things like that. And so we want to start in the patients in whom we think we can do the least harm and then work toward the patients where we think we can do the greatest benefit. Well, it sounds like you need time for the, uh, the rubbish to be cleared away. For the dead material to be naturally taken away by the body, but then the sweet that's spot a, that's probably a great will be before the scar. If, if, if you put it into the, if we put the cells into the dead tissue when all that inflammation is going on, most of them are killed as bystanders. Yeah, and then before the scarring happens, that's when the, the sweet spot is to put in the exactly. Uh, so it's kind the of the, the Goldilocks okay. phenomenon. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and again, if you have an area, I'm just going to make it up like a round one centimeter area that's you know that was dead and is now cleared away. Um, what's there before the scar tissue forms? You said there's inflammation, there'll be removal of the dead stuff. Have you observed what's there right before the scar tissue forms? Is it just uh, kind of undifferentiated cells that are sitting there and then they differentiate into scar tissue or what's the intermediate stage look like? There's, uh, there is this tissue that is an intermediate tissue of wound repair and the pathologists call it granulation tissue. And it's this very vigorously proliferating, cells are dividing as fast as in a malignant tumor, for example. So it's, it's really crazy. And, and so because the, the, the average heart attack kills off maybe a billion heart muscle cells, and so there's a lot of cell division that has to take place in order to just repopulate this, this defect. And so you, you see a lot of cell division, you see the ingrowth of these new blood vessel cells, you see the connective tissue cells, fibroblasts, they're proliferating like crazy as well. And what happens is that that gradually then starts to undergo waves of cell death so that uh, the, uh, many of the cells just start to die off and you're left with much more of a plain old connective tissue, which is really what scar tissue is. It's the, the collapsed connective tissue scaffold of what used to be tissue. And so it, it isn't... Um, it is a, these aren't bright light boundaries. It's sort of a fade in and fade out phenomenon. When you, so you say that cells proliferate into the area, but do they die or they just then become their final state of scar tissue because they're still living the whole time? I mean, it seems like they yeah, so it, 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 they rush in and they both. proliferate. Yeah, so they, they they proliferate, they migrate like crazy, they crawl in from the outside and crawl in to repopulate the injured zone, and then. Uh, after doing that for a month or so, uh, they start to die. And about 75% of the cells in the, from, from the, 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 the great, what I call the granulation uh, tissue stage, which is the height of wound repair, uh, from there, if you compare cell uh, content to the content of a scar, it's, it's lost about 75% of the cells. And, and that's just always been nature's way of, uh, of wound healing. 
the, anytime we form a scar anywhere in the body, it kind of goes through the same dynamics. Um, how long does it take uh, for the initial cleaning of the dead cells to happen on average? And how long does it take for the proliferation stage and then the final um, you know, scar tissue scarring stage? Yeah, well, the whole process start to finish takes about two months in a human being. Uh, the bigger, the bigger, the the bigger the heart, the longer it takes. So a, a mouse can heal much faster than a, a, a human being, as you might imagine. But uh, and and then what what we find is in the mouse there are these discrete waves because it's a, this tiny little bit of tissue. So it's very, you know, first it's it's all dead and inflamed, and then it's all in this granulation tape, tissue stage, and then it all it goes very quickly to scar. Just bang, bang, bang. In, in big hearts, what we find is that these, these windows overlap. And so that we, we can have scar that's, you know, mature scar that's formed on the outside, but on the inside of the wound, there's still dead muscle that hasn't been eaten yet. And so it, it, uh, the, these, these areas of dead tissue heal sort of from the outside in. And so in, in, in human beings, you see all the stages of wound repair simultaneously. What about the clearing of dead tissue? So it sounds like the Death happens inside out. The repair happens outside in. But what yeah, about the removal of the tissue? That's an interesting way to look tissue? at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go, go ahead with your question, please. That's okay. But, so yeah, the, the scarification happens outside in. But what about the removal of the dead tissue? Is that directional? That that direction is outside is in as well. Hmm. A, a lot okay, of the so white window have to crawl in from the outside where the blood vessels are healthy and they can they can get out of them. And then they, they start gobbling up the dead muscle, but more typically from the outside. So when you're poking in these cells, you'd want to poke and go to the deepest depth first and seed from the bottom up? Or do you seed from the top down? Or is there any... You know, we're not there? that sophisticated yet to know. That's, it's, it's interesting that... Uh, so you're... you're uh, your future tech is already uh, talking futuristically. So we, we are just glad to sort of distribute them broadly. Uh, what, one of the things we find is the, a lot of the cells that, the, the, you know, they've not evolved to be injected and that sort of thing like this. And so we end up losing a lot of them. And so there's a, there's a, a, a big chunk that, that die off. And then they grow back afterwards to, to some extent. So they partly repopulate the, the numbers that are lost. And we'd love, we'd love to be able to get rid of this problem of cell death uh, because we think we could get better remuscularization. And we wouldn't have to grow so many cells to begin with either. That would be, you know, so it would really reduce the cost of goods once we get into the clinic. But what happens to the cells that you try to, the implants that you poke in that don't successfully take? What do they become? Are they cleared away? Do they become yeah, they, scar tissue? Like what happens to them? Well, another good question. For the most part, they die off. The And, and then the white blood cells just gobble them up like, the, you know, just as though they were regular cells from the heart attack itself. So they, they, they get eaten by these specialized white blood cells. Uh, one of the things that we're concerned about is when, when we get these cells with the catheter, um, are, are they going to be distributed else, elsewhere in the body? And, and we, people have looked at this, uh, and if you look short-term, like within an hour or two afterwards, they do go to other places, particularly the lungs, because some of them sneak out through the bloodstream and then they're filtered at the lungs, which is, you know, once they go into the veins of the heart, they get uh, the, the next filter bed is, is, the, is the lung. And, but fortunately, we don't end up with beating lungs. The, cell, the cells seem unhappy there, and they, they simply die off. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want competing orchestras in different parts of the body, and that's, that's my guess. Why um, orchestras like 
your heart's growing in your lungs or you you know whatever no so we this is something we're definitely keeping an eye out for but uh so this is another area where it seems like we're getting a break from nature that the cells just don't like being anywhere but in the heart what about studying the uh the cell to cell signaling there must be a lot of very specific signaling that goes on from the existing heart tissue that tells the new cells all right grow don't grow go here don't go here now start beating in time to the master signal have you been able to isolate any of these signals? Maybe they're, I don't know, given off by exosomes from the existing cells or mechanical, you know, mechanically they're vibrating the membranes of the new cells in a certain way. I mean, have you figured out anything there? That's a that's a, that's a hot area that's, that's very actively being researched in the lab right now. One of the, uh, to, to just take a step back and then I'll, I'll round up back to this, but one of the one of the really holy grails in stem cell science right now is how to get our stem cell derivatives to mature to be more like adult cells. So what happens with we can make most of the cells in the human body now, but they're basically at early fetal stages when they in in the in the dish. And so the trick is, and, and of course, as you can imagine, the cells change a lot in our bodies from the time when we were developing in the uterus to the time when we're when we're adults, for example. And that's that's a mystery of developmental biology that nobody has ever really studied. And, but when we transplant the cells into the heart, they mature to be beautiful adult-like cells. And so there is there's it tells us there's some secret sauce about being in their normal environment that that um, that, that is driving this maturation. So we're we're trying to uh, systematically take this apart and figure out what it is that's making it work. Uh, the, the the first thing seems to be electricity when the when the cells you know the heart is of course an electrical organ and when you transplant the cells in and they start to connect uh with with the the, the grafted cells start to connect with the surviving cells from the host heart one of the first things they do is make these specialized junctions that elect, let electricity flow from one cell to the next and so we think the electrical pacing and that sort of thing is a big part of uh, of growing up uh, another thing is the mechanical environment, because the heart is obviously a very mechanically active organ, and the more mechanical strain that puts on these uh, that is put on these cells, it's, it's kind of like going to the gym, and they start to work out, they start to train, and they start to build muscle up. Uh, the third thing I'll say, and I won't just blather on and on, but but it uh, it's very interesting that their diet changes. When when they're in cell culture, they are principally eating sugar. Uh, just like the the fetal heart is in, inside uh, the uterus, and so that mostly is is a is a carbohydrate based diet. But when you eat, once we're born, of course, we switch to uh, nursing, and it's principally fat in breast milk that becomes the fuel. So that and and in, for the rest of its life, the heart likes to eat mostly fat. And so in your heart and my heart, it's burning about about eighty percent of what it's burning right now is fat. Uh, and we found that changing the cell's diet makes a huge difference. And so uh, a diet and then some of the, the uh, hormones that regulate metabolism, like thyroid hormone and cortisol and things like that, turn out to be really important uh, communications as well. So some of the signals are local in the heart itself, and some of the signals are, are systemic, and they come through the bloodstream. Wow, that's really interesting. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? The heart and there's all kinds of I mean, exosomes, as you mentioned, Yep, I'm sure that's going on. We haven't drilled into that yet, but it, it, they, it, they seem all kinds of cells are talking to each other through these little membrane-bound bits that they pass from one cell to the next, little information packets. And I'm sure that's going on also. 
Uh, it's just trying, you know, <laughs> trying to get a few things done rather than distract yourself like a kid in a candy store. It's crazy. Right. I mean, we're, you know, we're learning so many things and there's all these tools that are available uh, to us to, to, to explore cells in ways we never imagined. Yeah, no, that's amazing. <laughs> um, any evidence of uh, microbes or viruses or fungi or any um, any microbiome type things in the heart, in or around it? Any observations there? Well, so there, there's two ways to, to, to look at that. The one that we were most worried about in terms of developing a ther- therapy is how do you make sure that your cells are clean enough to be transplantable? And for that, uh, there there are standardized assays that uh, that, that commercial laboratories will conduct. And they, they look for every virus under the sun and all, and we do all kinds of uh, culture for bacteria and fung- fungi and that sort of thing. And we've just gotten back results from uh, a, a, a huge panel of viruses that we're look- that we've tested for. I spent $150,000 to get this done and our cells came back clean. We, we were biting our nails a little bit while, while that testing was out. Uh, so, so that's, so we're, we're, you know, check, check, check in all those boxes. Uh, the in terms of the, the, there's another conversation that's going on all the time in our bodies, which is from the microbiome. You know, we we live commensally with lots of other organisms on and in us, and our and our gut is having all kinds of influences on what what you know how our food is processed and what gets into our bloodstream and that sort of thing. And we're just beginning to understand how that works. We know, for example, though, that in terms of the upstream cause of heart disease, uh, which is blood vessel disease or atherosclerosis, uh, the, the microbiome seems to play a big role in promoting that. And so it, it would hardly be a surprise to find that there were microbiome-dependent effects that were happening as well. And so it, I think it goes both ways. We're, we're going to try to make sure we don't have an effect on the host. We don't want to transplant in new microorganisms. But I think our host will probably have in, influence on the cells after we put them in. Well, natively, do you think, and has anyone observed that there are, is a microbiome of the heart, you know, not just the gut, but is there a localized native microbiome, you think, of the heart? Has it, is there any so, indication so to see that? We, the heart, like most internal organs, we think of as a sterile environment. So we don't know of any microorganisms that are living in the heart, the brain, the kidney, the you know outside the the uh, outside the inside or outside the lumen of the intestine, right? So they, they, our intestines are sort of like the outside world in a way, just like our skin is, because they're they're just like an inside-out tube. Um, but once you get past that. I don't think there is a big microbiome for our, our truly internal organs. Okay. And that was a weird question. It just, I, know, I think it was an interesting question, but I mean, there, there are so many things where we do have them in our, so in our gastrointestinal tract, of course, in our urogenital tract and our reproductive tract, all those kinds of things, which ultimately are connected to the outside world. We're learning all those things have microbiomes, and that's a very important part of human health. Uh, but things for truly internal organs, so far, we don't know about microbiomes associated with them. But, you know, let, stay tuned, right? You know, I was also thinking about the heart. You know, it's an interesting organ because it filters so much blood over its life. What what have you noticed about the um, the blood-facing cells in the heart versus the ones that just compose the structure of the heart? I would bet that there are a lot of differences there. You know, the inside of the chambers, the inside surface versus the yeah. rest of the, the heart structure. 
Yeah, well, the 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 heart, the the the, the, the internal lining of the heart is is actually not even made up of muscle. I mean, we think of the heart as just a, a big big thing of muscle, but it's really got extra parts in it as well. And so the the line, the the inside lining of the heart is much more like a blood vessel. So that it's got a specialized cell that lines it called uh, the endothelium, which is the same kind of cell basically that lines the inside of our blood vessels all over the body. And endothelium is specialized to help promote blood flow, to uh, to not clot, and to be able to do specific things in response to injury and that sort of thing. So the inside of the heart is kind of, the, the, you know, it's got it's only one cell layer thick, but it's absolutely pivotal in terms of its function. And then as you move across the heart, uh, the, the, the cells that are on the innermost layer are pretty different from the cells that are on the outermost layer, just going across the, the muscle layer. And their electrical properties are different and their mechanical properties are different. For example, the electrical activity goes, it depolarizes from the inside to the out, but then it repolarizes from the outside to in. And so that's very interesting. And the cells that are on the innermost layer of the heart are actually stronger than the cells on the outer layer of the heart because they're dealing with the highest pressure because there's a big, because uh, there's, there's a lot of pressure inside the heart where the pump is running, but outside the the, you know, the outermost layers, pressure is not much different than it is in the lung or anything else in the chest. And so as you go from inside to, uh, to out, the, you, the cells go from stronger to weaker as well. So lots of differences across the wall. Yeah, this may be a silly question, but the heart probably has its own vascularization that's completely separate from the blood that flows through it. It wouldn't be oh, dependent upon the blood flowing through it. There, there, there's it. nothing silly about that question. That's a That's a insightful question and absolutely the heart has a, a very rich circulation that is that it doesn't get from its own chamber it gets from its own arterial supply and those are the coronary arteries so the first branch of the the aorta is the big blood vessel right that comes out of the heart and distributes the blood to the rest of the body the first thing to get fed is the heart so the heart feeds itself first and then goes on to feed the rest of the body and, the, and and that those first branches are called the coronary arteries because they make a crown-like structure over the surface of the heart. And so it's a coronary arteries, organ in the body as well. Incredible capillary density. Hmm. So the coronary arteries would have probably the highest pressure, the richest blood. Well, not uh, so much other... the highest pressure because the pressure is is pretty much the same throughout the arterial tree. But it's it's the it's the first thing to to get highly oxygenated blood and the, and the heart is really good at it, it it extracts like every last molecule off of hemoglobin it's it's one of the most efficient organs in the entire human body at pulling uh, at pulling oxygen out so its extraction is really uh, very efficient. Hmm. So in terms of uh, vascularization, you know, we talked about how the the new tissue that you the new cells you implant how they hook up with the rest of the heart. What about the vascularization? What does that look like in scarred tissue versus uh, once the tissue regrows properly? Yeah, that's also a, a, a very key question. So um, when, when a person has a heart attack, it doesn't just kill the muscle cells. It kills the infrastructure of the tissue as well. And so it kills the, vas the, the blood vessels and it kills the connective tissue as well. They're, they're not as sensitive to it as... Uh, as the heart muscle cells are, but they do die off as well. And so not only we, one of the mantras we have in the laboratory is that we need to revascularize in order to remuscularize, that we're never going to get good functioning heart muscle if we don't get good blood flow. 
And so we we're paying a lot of attention to how these blood vessels form in our graphs right now, and we're trying to uh, then we're trying to find ways to enhance that uh, the, the response of what's really the coronary circulation to make sure that we grow better capillaries and that sort of thing. One of the challenges at the moment is it's pretty easy to grow the little vessels, the the capillaries, and the big the the, the big vessels are the ones that we really need to get now. The, the what we call the large conducting vessels, because you can imagine if you had a big uh, if you had a big uh, uh, bottleneck, let's say, uh, on an interstate highway. It, it, in in the, the, the city department of transportation responded by building a bunch more surface streets. That would not make any sense. What you really need to do is 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 widen the artery, right? And so that's that's in the body is very good at making these capillaries. It's not very good at making new arteries. And so that's one of the the, the challenges that we're having for sort of like a 2.0, 3.0 improvements to regeneration is not just putting back new muscle cells, but actually improving the uh, the vascular infrastructure as well, because I think we'll get a lot more bang for our buck that way. Hmm. Why is this complicated? <laughs> I know you know better than me. It is It is complicated, and, and yet, you know, we look at it as job security. Uh, <laughs> that it, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like making developmental biology happen all over again in an adult organism, uh, but doing it in a, in a way that could be medically tremendously useful. I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about what's the number one cause of death in the whole world, right? So heart failure is, uh, it has for a couple of decades been the biggest cause of death, uh, and not in just the developed world, but really worldwide now. So including India and China and things like that. And, and so it's complicated, but it's, it's also time to to really start doing this, and we'll, you know how these things go, Rich. We'll we'll screw some things up at first. We'll we'll do the we'll, we'll have the right ideas, and we'll do them in the wrong order, and and we'll just have some of the wrong ideas as well. And we we're 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 learning as we go. But I think what what we're what we're in the middle of right now is kind of a slow revolution in the practice of medicine, where we're going to start to see cells actually being used as medicines themselves where they're able to rebuild the human body. Yeah, well, I can hear you're very excited about it, which is great. Um, so what are some of the uh, the important milestones you've hit recently, and what are some milestones you're going for in the next couple of years that would make you super happy if you hit them? So the, uh, the, the, the biggest thing that we hit recently was what we call efficacy, preclinical efficacy. Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, and we... We spent a lot of time demonstrating that we could grow new heart muscle and looking at it under the microscope, that sort of thing. Uh, but more recently, we we drilled down deeply on function. The, the, you know, you could call it the so what question. Yeah, you can make muscle that looks good under the microscope. So what? And what we found is that this new muscle will beat in synchrony with the surrounding muscle. So it it's it, it's hooked up and it's it 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 it's going at the same time when that was a prerequisite for really uh, regenerative healing. And then when we looked at the impact on the overall ability of the heart to pump, we we were we just had our socks blown off. Uh, we we looked at this thing called ejection fraction, which is how much does the heart squeeze out of the chamber with each beat. And normally it, it, it's say 65%. And we, we gave these animals experimental heart attacks, and that dropped it to 40%. So they were well on their way to heart failure. And if you don't intervene, 
it stays pretty much at 40% for the for the rest of the animal's life or gets worse. Uh, and, and the animals that we put human heart muscle in, we were able to get their ejection fractions back up into the 60s again. And I've never seen, you know, I've been in heart research since 84, and I have never seen anything that has had this ability to restore mechanical function to the heart. So that was a, that was a big breakthrough in terms of uh, demonstrating, the, it proves the concept that, you know, and if we can do this with human cells, say in a macaque monkey, we should surely be able to do this putting human cells into a human. Uh, in terms of what lies ahead, you know, what are the milestones that we need to make? Uh, there, there are several. We've got to be able to produce our cells uh, at pharmaceutical quality, reproducibly, uh, in a manner that, we're, that, that will assuage concerns in the Food and Drug Administration or uh, European uh, regulatory agencies or wherever it is that we want to market this. Uh, so we're and, and we're close on that. I think I think I think we'll get there this year. Uh, the other thing is that we uh, we we haven't talked about this yet, but the cells have an unexpected toxicity that when we put them in, they make the heartbeat irregular for several weeks afterwards. It can make the heart race really fast, and that turns out to be sort of a, a power struggle between our adolescent cells and the adult heart muscle. And so we're trying to learn, you know, why is it that it, it makes the heart race so so rapidly? And uh, so over the next 12 months, probably the biggest thing I'll be working on is how in the heck do we keep this from happening? Uh, and I think it really relates to the fact that the cells are immature. And if we can get them to grow up a little in the dish before we put them in someone's mother, uh, I, th I think their chances are going to be... Uh, 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 they, they, the chances of something going wrong will be significantly reduced. Is there a critical mass of cells that you put in where this struggle happens? Or if you put in just a few, does it not happen? That's a good question. There, There is a dose dependency to it. I, I mean, almost almost every phenomenon in biology has what we call a dose response curve. Uh, and at the moment, we're trying to see if if there is a sort of a Goldilocks sweet spot where we can put in few enough cells that they still are benefiting function, but enough cells, uh, excuse me, I said that backwards, enough cells that they're benefiting function, but few enough that they don't cause rhythm disturbances. And that's active investigation right now. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. What, what's the best way for uh, listeners, you know, since right of time to uh, find out more, maybe read papers you put out, look at the lab, see, uh, you know, interact, ask questions? Yeah, there's, I mean, the, the for for people who are experts in the field, of course, uh, going to, to look at our scientific papers and, and seeing what our most recent ones are, uh, are is probably the best way to, to get a sense of, uh, of the state of the art. And we've written a couple recent review articles that, that summarize this. Uh, for, for people who are interested in uh, the sort of the, the, the more patient uh, centered aspects of it, a couple of resources. Uh, I gave a, a, a recent TEDx talk on this. And so there's a 15 minute sort of summary of, of what our, you know, what my personal scientific trajectory has been in this crazy field. Uh, and so if somebody's got 15 minutes of their life to waste, they could go check that out on the TED website. Uh, the, the International Society for Stem Cell Research has a very good site for patients that's called A Closer Look at Stem Cells. And I would suggest people check that out as well because we've got uh, we've got sort of one-page white papers on various different diseases that include 
heart disease, but it also includes Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and arthritis and diabetes and, and lots of other diseases as well that people are interested in. And people could take a look at that, and, and those have nice summaries written for, at the level of the patient uh, about what the current state of the art is in, in cell replacement therapies for all these different diseases. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Jack, this has been an awesome call. Very interesting, and I yeah, really appreciate no, you coming on. You, you, you have terrific questions. Well, thank you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.